Master Hakuin's chant and praise of Zazen. From the very beginning, all beings are Buddha. Like water and ice, without water, no ice, outside us, no Buddhas. How near the truth, yet how far we seek. Like one in water, crying, I thirst. Like a child of rich birth, wandering poor on this earth, we endlessly circle the six worlds. The cause of our sorrow is ego delusion. From dark path to dark path, we wandered in darkness. How can we be free from birth and death? The gateway to freedom is Sazen Samadhi. Beyond exaltation, beyond all our praises, is the pure Mahayana. Upholding the precepts, repentance and giving, the countless good deeds and the way of right living all come from Sazen. Thus, one true Samadhi extinguishes evils. It purifies karma, dissolving obstructions. Then where are the dark paths to lead us astray? The pure lotus land is not far away. Hearing this truth, heart humble and grateful, to praise and embrace it, to practice its wisdom, brings unending blessings, brings mountains of merit. And when we turn inward and prove our true nature, that true self is no self, our own self is no self, we go beyond ego and past clever words. Then the gate to the oneness of cause and effect is thrown open. Not two and not three, straight ahead runs the way. Our form now being no form, and going and returning we never leave home. Our thought now being no thought, our dancing and songs are the voice of the Dharma. How vast is the heaven of boundless samadhi! How bright and transparent the moonlight of wisdom! What is there outside us? What is there we lack? Nirvana is openly shown to our eyes. This earth where we stand is the pure lotus land, and this very body, the body of Buddha. Today is the fourth day of our summer seven-day session, 11th of January, 2022. And we're going to um, continue with the article, Awaken to the True Self. Uh, this is a partial script of a conversation that took place between Tangan Roshi and Takashi Aoyama in 1984. Uh, it was translated and notes added by uh, Belinda Atawai Yamakawa. For a thousand people who decide to sit, there are a thousand motives and a wide disparity between depths of aspiration. When we, when we come to uh, spiritual practice, our motivation isn't always pure and altruistic. I think it's idealistic to imagine that everyone who comes to the Dharma comes with bodhisattvic intent. 
All kinds of motivations are accepted though because if we engage in the practice sincerely, our motivation can change through that process, purify. Sometimes, sometimes this doesn't happen. Sometimes people get some relief from their dukkha through the practice and then settle for that or, or even uh, leave at that point. Um, it's likely that they, they may come back when the dukkha in their lives increases. The main thing, however, is to awaken to one's true self. This true self is supreme and irreplaceable, and we call it Buddha. Of course, one's true self is not that which we ordinarily conjure up in our heads and habitually regard as self. It is rather the genuine self, which cannot be grasped, seen, or spoken of. So the main thing is just to become aware of this self. can't be spoken of because uh, words limit it and it's limitless. We can speak of seasons in the process of, becoming, of coming to self-knowledge and we can say that opportunity ripens. There is the unawakened season the season when one comes to know of the existence of this reality, the season when one believes in the teachings, the season when one believes and therefore mindly keeps one's awareness constant, and finally, there is the season in which one is awakened. This, this um, particular word that he uses here, I think is, is very uh, apt and important season. It's recognizing that this process of uh, practice, spiritual practice, dharma practice, is, has its seasons. We can't um, uh, say to ourselves, well, this is, this is when it's going to happen. This is when, when I'll awaken. It's an unfolding, a ripening. And he uses this word, he says, we can say that opportunity ripens. We have the expression, ichi tante, now, now, this is Ichi Tante. I did a bit of looking up this, this expression um, on the internet because I wondered what the, the, this Tante means. Ichi, ichi means one. Um, but all I, all I got when I googled Tante was um, some online 
detective game. There was no other meaning for, for Tante except for detective. <laughs> um, he, he seems to translate it here just as now, now, or now here. Um, so perhaps, perhaps there's a con connection between the two in terms of Tante meaning, as it comes out a little bit later, interest, research, or investigation. We have the expression ichi tante, now, now. This is ichi tante. The teacher is one who clearly reveals this to the student. Reality is not off someplace else, away from right now and here. Now, here. Don't be careless. Don't be off guard. The teacher points out the path, the direct route, and in the way most appropriate to each student. With this direction, the student can truly practice the most treasured straight path. It's a, it's a straight path that has many, many uh, corners in it, many bends, many ups and downs. The, the, the structure of, of Sishin also um, points us to this moment again and again. The, the Han, the, the inking bell, the clappers, Coming, bringing us back into this moment as it unfolds. To maintain the spirit of practice, the student single-mindedly works to make the tante constant so that everything is in her daily life becomes this practice, this research into her true identity. Everything becomes Zazen. This is truly being alive. This research into her or his true identity. A research that, that uh, is available in each moment. Whatever arises, whatever we struggles we face, they can become the, the subject of our investigation, our interest. Our research into what is our true identity. If we can, if we can practice this, then everything becomes Zazen. There's really no such thing as, as distraction. This, this is an attitude of mind that we can develop. And then we won't be phased by anything. Inherent in, in uh, just practicing this um, investigating or, or research is that um, 
it's non-grasping. An open yes, as Tangan Roshi says. We're talking in um, one of the Te shows before Sishin about the, the necessary attitudes, the correct attitudes to have in taking up practice. And the first one we looked at was uh, contentment. This is in Guogu's book, Silent Illumination, A Chan Buddhist Path to Natural Awakening. And just read a little passage here in the section about contentment. There is no formulaic way to cultivate contentment or non-grasping. We need to personally explore the flavor of contentment and digest this feeling little by little, becoming familiar with it in our lives. We can't just force this attitude on ourselves and expect to be able to plow through all of our problems. Contentment is not a mere concept. We need to appreciate the depth of what it means to be content. It is not just being disinterested or detached from everything. Contentment includes this radical acceptance of whatever arises, an embracing of uh, the unpleasant as well as, as well as the pleasant. When we are content, we appreciate what we have and we are able to engage fully in whatever may arise. There's a freshness to it. With contentment, we're able to avail ourselves openly of everything without rejecting anything. In this process, there may be pain and grief, but we are cultivating the ability to feel fully, to be present to whatever arises without judgment. Um, to, uh, to investigate, to research. Ichitante. Allowing such feelings to move through us will make us stronger. We are incredibly resilient. Our hearts and minds will eventually accept and release whatever comes through us. To do this, we have to be in tune with the body and anchor ourselves in it. Contentment resides in the heart and it has an associated bodily component. The easiest way to become familiar with contentment is to physically relax the body. We relax from the crown of the head to the toes, section by section. We relax the skin, pores, muscles, tendons. This means actually feeling different areas of our bodies. Most people are so out of tune with their bodies that they don't really know how to relax or what their bodies feel. So this requires practice. When we, when we find ourselves um, feeling disconnected, then um, just returning to the body and, and working one's way methodically through its different parts um, can help us to, to come back into the present, into this the here, now. And that's, that's always available to us, that, that um, process.
When one settles into this ichi tante, regardless of the job one has to do in this world, one's efficiency increases manifold. This is because the practice becomes doing solely whatever one may find oneself faced with. Doing solely whatever one is doing, so that distractions do not arise. Therefore, in whatever circumstance we may find ourselves, our efficiency is increased. It is such that one even comes to wonder how it is this world is taking such good care of one. Living in truth is like this is wonderful. This is the um, what goes around comes around principle. The more we take care, the more we're taken care of. Bodhisattvas spring up to help. We're needed. This is this is the the way in which we we really do create our own world. The next section is headed up big mind, joyful mind, parental mind. And these, these three um, aspects of mind um, were originally taught by um, Master Dogen. Completely enveloped and suckered by the whole universe, you are like the mountains, like the seas, like the great sky which knows no limits. This great big boundlessness is your own mind, big mind. To awaken to this big mind, just do whatever it is you are doing right this moment with your whole heart. Just do whatever it is you are doing right this moment with your whole heart. How often do we do that? Do we not even know what it is to do something wholeheartedly? To, th to throw ourselves into something 100%. We can do this, and, and with many hours of zazen under our belts, this becomes more and more possible to just lose ourselves in, in our activity, whatever that may be. If you do this with all your might, this world will, without fail, re reveal itself to you. This hard little lump of self will dissolve and you will, you will inevitably awaken to big mind. This, you could say this is the lubricant of things, this giving ourselves totally. The more we do this, the more friction will diminish. 
It's, it's our holding back that gums up the works. Joyful mind is the mind that cannot help but feel gratitude. It is not that you feel thankful because you are supposed to feel thankful, but rather that you cannot help but feel thankful. You feel so much gratitude that it spills over as joy. Roshi Cole, he used to call um, gratitude the most exalted emotion. The, the kind of uh, flags, uh, sp spiritual understanding, this kind of gratitude. And then, from that boundless joy, kindness arises. Kindness which is born from thoroughly exhausting all of one's small self and merging to become one with others. This is parental mind. Mind, the mind of, of loving kindness. The mind, the mind of no lack. This, this um, parental mind grows with use. When big mind, joyful mind, and parental mind come together as one body, just this is in itself bodhisattva mind. And isn't this indeed the very basis of all education of our children? Shakyamuni Buddha and the patriarchs teach the fundamentals of education in this way. Each child from the first is the master of big mind. If this heart is encouraged to spring forth, the child will naturally become cheerful and problems will take care of themselves. The child will become a human being who is sensitive to the pain of others. Sensitivity to others, joy which flows of itself, these functions of life are gradually cultivated. No matter how much you study, or how many books you read, or how much theory you learn, this kind of knowledge can only be an aid, but never the driving source, never the driving force toward peace of mind. And actually, if one is not careful, theoretical exercise can even be an obstacle. The important thing is to let go of mind and body and take refuge in truth itself. It is a matter of permitting yourself, all you can, to recognize truth, to sincerely live in the now, which is here, where your life is, right here. If you see only the differences between yourself and others, you feel easily irritated, overly sensitive. And most of the time we do see the differences between us and others much more than we see how much we are, are the same. And 
our differences are far outweighed by what we all share. Somebody sent me recently a, a guided meditation um, called A Practice for Appreciating Others. It comes from um, a mindfulness source and is a, and is a sort of a version, um, a version of, of metta practice, loving-kindness practice. And in, in, if you take up this, this, this meditation, you um, bring to mind somebody, can be somebody you, you're close to, somebody, a family member or a friend or a colleague, or it can be somebody you just see around, somebody quite neutral in your life, or it can be a person with whom you have difficulty. And um, then you take up this practice and uh, I got this actually from from uh, Katie in, in Gore, who who's um, shared this with the prisoners she works with. At, um, at the Inver- I think it's the Invercargill prison, um, and says it, and was telling me that, that how powerful it is for the prisoners to do this, which is why I asked her to send it to me. But here's here's how it goes. So you begin by being aware of the person you're, you're going to be doing the practice with in your mind, um, or it can actually be somebody who's sitting, sitting across from you. This is, this is the, the, uh, the script, so to speak. This person has a body and a mind just like me. This person has feelings, thoughts, and emotions just like me. This person has, during his or her life, experienced physical and emotional pain and suffering, just like me. This person has at some point been sad, just like me. This person has been disappointed in life, just like me. This person has sometimes been angry, just like me. This person has been hurt by others, just like me. This person has felt unworthy and inadequate at times, just like me. This person worries, just like me. This person is frightened sometimes, just like me. This person will die, just like me. This person has longed for friendship, just like me. This person is yearning about life, just like me. This person is learning, just like me. This person wants to be caring and kind to others, just like me. This person wants to be content with what life has given, just like me. This person wishes to be free from pain and suffering, just like me. This person wants to be happy, just like me. This person wishes to be safe, strong, and healthy, just like me. This person wishes to be loved, just like me. If you see only the differences between yourself and others, you feel easily irritated, overly sensitive. 
If you're out to take care of just your own little self, guard your own little castle, protect your own separate existence in whatever way you can, it'll all eventually just go under anyway, won't it? So go back to the starting point. Return to your true home, the home which is the same for every single being in this world. I want you to see into your true self. I want to wait you to awaken to your true self. Now for the um, second part of this talk, we're going to go back to the Zenbo issue on Tangan and um, have a look at some uh, reminiscences about him. Um, From Wes Borden. Um, Wes Borden's been a member of the Centre Forever. Um, he uh, was a student of Roshi Kaplow. In his own little um, potted bio by his uh, photograph in the issue, he says, um, Wes Borden's application for membership in the Rochester Zen Centre was initially rejected by Kaplow Roshi, who called Wes a spiritual butterfly. He has spent the past 49 years trying to prove that Kaplow Roshi's original assessment was wrong. So he's, quite <laughs> he's got quite a sense of humour. Um, a spiritual butterfly, I guess, is, is somebody who who flits from flower to flower, taking sips of nectar, but doesn't um, settle down, hunker down and do the practice. Wes um, is a, uh, or was a, a professor of chemistry um, based in Seattle. He's retired now. And uh, he's also uh, been a generous supporter of the Auckland Zen Center. Um, he was um, taking part in uh, one of the online uh, sessions that uh, I led last year, middle of last year. So we're going to take up his uh, reminiscences partway through. Um, he's talking about the very first time he met Tangan Roshi when he went to went to Bukokaji. This was in in. Uh, 1979, and um, he describes how um, he was silently ushered into the the, the uh, temple by uh, Tangan and um, handed a stick of incense to light in the hondo, which was which was uh, it is a the expected first thing that you do when you come to a, a new temple is to offer offer at the altar. And um, so Wes did this, but during his prostrations he was trying to see the figure on the altar because as, as 
often the case in Japanese altars, the figure is sort of somewhat hidden behind curtains, um, so quite mysterious. And so after he did his offering of the incense and three prostrations, um, he could just only see the bottom half of the figure. And um, he was sort of ducking down maybe to try and look under the curtain. So um, the Roshi saw that what he was trying to do and, and actually lifted the, the large heavy figure off the altar and where it says, he cradled it in his arms with the same affection one might cradle one's own child. Tangan Roshi then said his first words to me, Kanon Sama. Kanon, Kanzeon, Avalokiteshvara, Bodhisattva of Compassion. And Sama is an honorific, uh, meaning precious. Uh, in fact, people at Bukokuji all called Tangan Roshi. Roshi-sama, so it's a term of, an, of affection and respect. After returning Kanon-sama to the altar, the Roshi signaled me to sit down on a cushion that he pushed across the tatami floor towards me. As I sat watching, he poured a cup of tea for me. Only then did he say his first sentence to me, how did you come here? I was so happy to hear that Tangan Roshi spoke some English that I did not occur, it did not occur to me that he might be asking me a, quotes, Zen question. Without blurting, thinking about it, I blurted out, taxi. <laughs> <laughs> now, uh, some of you are already chuckling um, because you've been exposed to so many koans in Mondo in which this is the, the first question in the exchange, where have you come from? And of course it means more than uh, uh, how did you get here, what conveyance did you use, or, or where have you come from? Um, just an ex example of this from, from many, or a couple of examples of this question, which is, in other words, where, where do you come from? Where you, what is your truth? What are you? Who are you? Um, the, the case, the story that is behind the um, preliminary koan, what is this? Um, here, here it is. Huai Rang entered the room and bowed to Huai Nung. This is the sixth ancestor. Where do you come from? Huai Nung asks. I come from Mount Song, replied Huai Rang. So he didn't get it either. So Wes is in good company. What is this and how did it get here? demanded Huai Nung. Huai Rang could not answer and remained speechless. He practiced for many years until he understood. And um, seems like it was eight years that he practiced between this question and his understanding. He went to see Hui Nung to tell him about his breakthrough. Hui Nung said, what is this? Hui Rang replied, to say it is a thing misses the mark, but still it can be cultivated. Of course, these stories are so boiled down that uh, we can miss the, the, the intensity of the life behind 
the story. Just um, one other example of the same kind of thing. This is um, Yao Shan and a, and a monk, anonymous monk. Yao Shan asked a monk, who, a monk who had just arrived at the temple, where do you come from? The monk said, from Hunan. Yao Shan asked, is Dong Ting Lake full or not? So he gave him a second chance. Is Dong Ting Lake full or not? The monk said, it is not full. Yao Shan said, there's been a lot of rain lately. Why isn't it full? The monk did not answer. So these questions are a way of, of uh, testing the water, of um, discovering what the state of mind of the, the person asked is. Where are they, where are they coming from? We, we use this expression. So back to... Bukokaji in 1979, Roshi, Tangan Roshi asks, um, how did you come here? And, and Wes replies, taxi. <laughs> the Roshi looked at me disapprovingly. I thought he disapproved because the temple was quite near to the train station. Therefore I said, I did not know the way from the station to here, so I took a taxi. He nodded and said, I show you, so tomorrow you can walk to station. Despite this, the fact that there was a sashin in progress at Bukokuji, the Roshi acted as though he had all the time in the world to walk me to the train station so I could get the, on the train back to Kyoto the next day. When on our walk he came to a large road, he paused and said, look right, look left, look right, then cross. <laughs> so we can probably remember this, some of us at least, from, from our childhoods and being taught this, have it hammered into us, except with the opposite look, directions, of course. He accompanied each of his words with the appropriate turn of his head, right, left, right, then straight ahead. Actually, no, it wouldn't be opposite because Japan drives on the same side as we do. So anyway, he's giving him another little lesson and attention, I guess, here. On the way back to the temple, we encountered a young woman pushing a baby carriage. She and Tang and Roshi greeted each other, and although I could not understand a word they said to each other, the mutual affection in their greeting was palpable. Wow, I thought, the Roshi is such a sweet man. Is this the same fierce monk who had stood behind Philip Kaplow all night, hitting him with the kyosaku in order to help him come to awakening? I was totally unprepared when a few minutes after we met the young woman with the baby carriage, the Roshi turned and said in a conversational time, tone, what time is it where you live? I looked at my watch and tried frantically to remember whether to add or to subtract eight hours to convert the time in Japan to the time in Seattle. The Roshi kept walking, and I quickly realized that I had not answered the question that the Roshi was actually asking. 
What time is it where you live? What are the times like? Again, so he's giving him another chance. He's asking another Zen question. My reaction to my mistake surprised me as a chemistry professor to be unable to answer a chemistry question correctly would be the worst kind of humiliation for me. After nine years of Zen practice, four years of them spent working on koans, I had not even realized that the Roshi was asking me another Zen question. I should have been humiliated, but wasn't. I can only explain my lack of reaction to my mistake by saying that I, had, that I somehow felt the Roshi was not judging me. He was just seeing me exactly as I was. This allowed me to see my failure to grasp the question that the Roshi was actually asking me as exactly what it was. My failure to grasp the question that the Roshi was really asking me without adding a judgment to it. I experienced the same type of wholly uncharacteristic lack of my judging myself a few hours later. The Roshi asked me if I wanted to join the Sishin, and when I said yes, he took me to the Zendo and showed me where to sit. After several rounds of Zazen, there was afternoon chanting, but when I returned to the Zendo for more Zazen after chanting, I was the only person there. Where had everyone else gone? Traditionally, one chants, we, one sits in the zendo, but chants in the hondo, in the, hondo the dharma hall. So he comes back um, to the spookily empty zendo. I figured that sooner or later the other Sishin participants would return to the zendo, so I sat down and started doing zazen again. However, a few minutes later, the Roshi entered the zendo, rubbed his hands together to get my attention, and then escorted, escorted me to the dining hall. This is a, a quiet um, way that one can attract somebody's attention in a zendo, or other quiet space. <coughs> he said nothing to me. But when we arrived at the dining hall, all of the other Sishin participants were seated at tables waiting for me so that they could begin to eat their evening meal. How embarrassing. Normally, I would have prayed for the earth to open up and swallow me. However, miraculously, I did not feel humiliated. I had not known that everyone was going to dinner, so I had returned to the Zendo. Those were the facts, and there was really nothing more that was necessary to add. Not only did I not hate myself for my terrible faux pas, I did not even think about it again. I just sat down to eat dinner. I can only attribute my totally uncharacteristic lack of embarrassment for my mistake to the fact that I somehow felt that the Roshi had again accepted what had happened without judging me. Therefore, there was no reason for me to judge myself. In writing about this incident 39 years later, I can still recall an incredible feeling of freedom, freedom from the usual cascade of thoughts about what had happened, freedom from my own rationalizations of it, and freedom from the usual stream of negative self-judgments. What a gift.
Tangan Roshi was very good at providing me with such moments of freedom because I made many mistakes at Bukokuji. For example, two years later, I visited Bukokuji with Ken Kraft, with whom I had begun doing zazen in the attic of a Harvard undergraduate dorm in 1970. From Bukokuji, Ken and I visited the grave of Harada Sogakurashi, who was not only Tangan Roshi's teacher, but also his adoptive father. We also visited the little house where Harada Roshi had lived and which he had given to Tangan Roshi. When we returned to Bukokuji, Tangan Roshi was waiting for us. He immediately said, What did Harada Roshi say to you? My mind froze. It was filled with thoughts about the fact that Harada Roshi was not only Tangan Roshi's teacher, but also his father, adoptive father. Never having met Harada Roshi, how could I respond to Tangan's question without sounding presumptuous and without possibly offending Tangan Roshi? With all of these thoughts filling my head, the best I could do was to answer Tangan Roshi's question with a lame reply. Harada Roshi said, welcome. Rather skeptically, Tangan Roshi queried, Harada said, welcome? Yes, he said, welcome, didn't he, Ken? I replied, turning to Ken Kraft. Ken, Ken was gracious and shared the blame for my lame response. He agreed that Harada Roshi had said, welcome. However, when Ken and I were alone again, Ken said, I thought Harada Roshi said, nothing but moo. Why didn't you give that response? I asked. Ken replied, I thought you had more experience working on cons than I, so I thought that your answer would be better than mine. Ken was too polite to add, but I was certainly wrong about that assumption. So not only had Tangan Roshi witnessed my really lame answer to his question, but my friend and fellow Zen student Ken Kraft had heard it too. Once again, to my complete surprise, I did not think about the matter again. I seemed fated to make mistake after mistake around Tangan Roshi. However, despite the many mistakes that I, had, that I made around him, which he certainly witnessed, I did not feel that he judged me, at least not in the way that I usually judge myself. I sensed that, in fact, he cared for me. He cared for me in a way that I still find hard to explain because it had nothing to do with what I usually call me. He cared for me in the same way that I care for my granddaughters, not for what they say or do or how they behave, but just because they are my granddaughters. Tangan went out of his way to take care of me. That was apparent when he showed me where to sleep on my first night at Bukokuji. To my surprise, he laid out my futon for me. In other words, while I watched, Tangan Roshi made my bed for me. Then he looked carefully at me, saw my long legs, and added an extra cushion and an extra quilt at the foot of my futon, saying only, keep feet warm.
I think this is a good place to uh, stop for now and um, we'll take, take up the, the rest of this uh, tomorrow. So right now we'll uh, chant four vows. All beings without number, I vow to liberate endless blind passions. I vow to uproot dharma gates beyond measure. I vow to penetrate the great way of Buddha. I vow to attain all beings without number. I vow to liberate endless blind passions. I vow to uproot dharma gates beyond measure. I vow to penetrate the great way of Buddha, I vow to attain all beings without number. I vow to liberate endless blind passions. I vow to uproot dharma gates beyond measure. I vow to penetrate the great way of Buddha, I vow to attain.